0: 15 seconds Five, four, three, two, one, zero.
1: Hello and thank you for joining us today. We are going to be speaking with Al. He's based in Chicago with the Passive House Institute of the United States. Uh, He'll refer to that as FIAS. Now he's coming with a really cool background. He actually has a master's in architecture and uh, an undergraduate in engineering. So he is a qualified man to speak to us about all things uh, moving towards high performance housing. Al, I appreciate you coming to the show. I'm just going to let you introduce yourself for the audience so that they have a sense of who you are. I want to hear about what's important to you uh, and, you know, how you found yourself uh, in in your role right now.
0: Sure. Um, so I'm Al Mitchell. I'm a uh, native Chicagoan and um, I am on technical staff at FIAS, formerly known as the Passive House Institute US. Um, and I get the distinct pleasure of working on project reviews, um, research towards trying to figure out how to make the standard better and provide better guidance, and pretty much any other type of technical task they throw at me. Um, This is my first job out of school. Uh, I just did my, uh, undergrad in architectural engineering, and then I did a master's of architecture, uh, which I think gave me a pretty, um, a pretty solid holistic view of what's going on in terms of building and how all of the little systems work together. And, uh, I knew I wanted to do something in building performance and energy conservation, and uh, to me, FIUS was the one true no nonsense standard that I wanted to be involved in. So,
1: well, that's quite a plug for FIAS because if you're coming to the table with a master's in architecture, I mean that that is a significant accomplishment on its own. So, how did you take what what you were trained in architecture, your passion there, and then? what is it about what passive house stands for or energy conservation where was the light on the path that drew you forward
0: sure um in 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 the engineering thing we focused a lot on systems uh and having worked as a, an MEP designer for a couple of years um There's only so much you can do with systems where they are then trying to correct mistakes that happened before the project had even touched your hands. And I think there's a lot of stuff that can be done up front in terms of the architecture of a building, be it form or be it the enclosure design that has a bigger impact on the building's overall performance. And that's usually in the hands of an architect. So, having gone that, down that route and having uh, gotten into energy modeling and uh, participated in the competition formerly known as the Race to Zero, which is now the Solar Decathlon Design Challenge, um, that pushed me to a fine fias as a good baseline for that and having worked through the process of a super insulated airtight building first and then meeting it with these high efficiency mechanical systems I, i was sold on the process so
1: yeah that makes sense just for some of our listeners what is MEP
0: Sure. Uh, MEP is mechanical electrical plumbing. And if you're, uh, if you're a Chicagoan, you typically that includes fire protection as well, because uh, you burn your city down once and they'll never let you forget it. So <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> you know what? yeah, that's fair enough. Fair enough. That's how we learn. Right. So, yeah. okay. So let's just, let's just roll with that. I mean, obviously a big part of the the progress we're making as a construction industry right now, as we move towards net zero emissions targets and so on, are built upon some of the mistakes of the past or some of the hard lessons learned. And and what are some of those lessons that are are present for you right now and Fias that goes okay because this has happened, we're going to do this other thing going forward. What are some of those things that we're moving towards? Um,
0: one of the one of the big things is trying to better understand um uh hygrothermics or like the moisture control in a building assembly um for a long time, we built buildings without a lot of insulation, but the form of the building took a lot of that work out from up front of it. We had um, all of like the pre-World War II buildings all had long overhangs on the side to make sure it shed water appropriately. They had appropriate shading. Um, you know, if, if they had double pane or triple pane windows prior to World War II, I'm sure they would have used them as well. But in the the mass production of homes that started post-World War II with the baby boom, i um, I think a lot of those buildings tend to lack the intuitiveness that was in those pre-World War, um, pre-World War II buildings. And we've been trying to make up for it constantly and get back to like what the roots of the fundamentals of how the architecture responds, like what does bioclimactic design mean in that situation? Um, And, Tying back into that uh, hydrothermal performance, like, yeah, does it shed water correctly? And then at some point in time, too, in the 50s, when people came back, especially if you're from the Midwest, um, we see a lot of buildings that have double vapor retarders in them on either side of the studs. And now, especially as we move to more airtight buildings, we know that that's not good. Um, and so we're trying to correct those mistakes for sure
1: and and that's because that rots the structure.
0: Sure. Right? Sure. Yeah. It not only yeah, it rots your structure and if you're using cellulose as your insulation that's going to mold and everything's just going to fall apart on you for sure.
1: Well, and I think that's one of the criticisms that some of the old stalwarts in the construction industry have of these targets is that we're sealing these houses up so airtight that they just don't breathe. And the concept of breathing in a house is like your house needs to breathe. And mm-hmm. so I've actually, I actually know licensed builders that would go in after they get their insulation inspection, you know, you got insulation poly, they'd go and slash the poly with lots of like, just take the exact and I've cut the poly open and then put their drywall on, uh, you know, mud tape and, uh, and call it good, believing that they're actually helping the building.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the the all of the air tightness targets originally come from a durability standpoint, um, primarily in terms of like preventing these exact situations where you've got some kind of moisture that gets in and rots or damages something. And it it drastically adds to the longevity of building materials.
1: You, you know, interesting. One of the things that stood out to me in the passive house education, because we're on a process of becoming passive house um, design consultants is that houses do need to breathe, but mm-hmm. they don't need to breathe through the wall cavities, through electrical sockets, through the little space underneath the window, uh, where where air is just leaking through poor envelope assemblies and all the dirtiness in between that, all the decades worth of dust and mold potentially. Uh, and then Passive House says, yeah, your house needs to breathe. So we're actually going to control where it breathes. and regulate the airflow and i thought that was a significant shift forward
0: no i i absolutely agree um why not control something else and have it go how you want it to happen as a designer yeah and it's not in top on top of that too like It's not just controlling the the air that you're breathing in there, but then you're also like reducing noise infiltration into the house. If you live in a tight city, like you can make sure that you're venting uh, air intake from your backyard instead of up by the street or something like that. Like there's so many controls you have to the benefit of your indoor air quality in this.
1: And that's a significant thing. Now, I'm also curious. As an architect, from an architect's perspective, one of the criticisms that high performance homes have had is that in order to make it energy efficient, you got to turn it into essentially a concrete bunker that's devoid of form or beauty or aesthetic or um, a lot of the attributes that make it attractive. Tell me about your perspective.
0: Uh, coming from Chicago, uh Architecturally, I am a huge Mies fan, and I know that I'm, I'm still working distinctly and trying to reconcile how to get his single pane glass boxes to have some modicum of building performance. Um there's a, I think there's a lot of beauty in the simplicity and the intentionality of his design that we see that is kind of lost in sort of the postmodern and then wherever we're at now um, in a lot of home construction where it's a kit of patterns and none of them really go cohesively together. Um, because it's a performance standard as well and it's not some kind of prescriptive shoebox, uh, you can take it on whatever path you want in terms of trying to get form right, but yeah follow the form that's beautiful but like uh inform the form by the building's performance place those windows not where it seems best for some aesthetic reason but maybe there's a driver in terms of like passive solar heat gain or uh, a natural ventilation strategy you want to use as well
1: yeah and and it something as simple as the orientation of the major face of the house to where the sun is Uh, i just i had no idea how big it an impact that has on the overall building performance. Mm-hmm. Again, with passive house, it, passive house just sets the bar, and it says jump over it. I don't care how you jump over it, but you got to jump over it, uh, which is which is an interesting strategy.
0: Yeah, I'm. And again, as I mentioned, like this is the no nonsense building standard to me, and having that design agnosticism is i think really important to the adoption of something like this if we regulated everybody's form to a t or we regulated you know what system you have to pick or if you can't have a jetted hot tub in your house then i think there would be a lot of um, pushback from the, the population
1: okay so in your experience where do you feel like people uh bump up into obstacles as they're you know Wanting to walk down this path of building more uh, high-performance, environmentally conscious homes, where do you see them hitting points of resistance? Um, Sometimes the market for equipment and appliances
0: hasn't quite responded yet. Um, There are, I think... Three or four Energy Star rated wine fridges, and <laughs> and people want more choices than three or four, especially as we push into um, larger homes. Um, sometimes we've seen some issues in terms of spaces being too large uh, to hit the requirements. Uh, there's too many square foot per bedroom. And it's above, well above a standard size. Um, that tends to get a little uh questionable. Um, and then the other th- thing that we see is a big uh struggling point and that's still kind of in discussion is um homes on really narrow and urban lots can be difficult. especially if you're trying to insulate those walls as thick and as thick as they need to be to hit some of the targets in the colder city like Chicago or New York or Minneapolis, you lose a lot of floor area. So that's one of the few um, issues we get pushed back on.
1: Well, you know what? And absolutely you hit something, especially when you got these homes that are stacked close together. Uh, I mean, you can't shift the way the home is facing to put some high solar heat gain windows on the South side to capture some of the, uh, the sun's energy, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. So no. there's some real practical limitations there. Mm-hmm. So what advice do you have for people that don't have that like wide open Montana blue sky that they can slot their house on the blank piece of property, wherever they want. And they're really, they're infilling um, old homes in in city, city centers. How do they do this?
0: Uh, it. it- It all depends on the site and trying to react to the site you've got as best as you can. Um, Also, with the... One of the one of the kind of misnomers that happens with a lot of passive building is yes, like orientation is important, and in the colder climates especially, trying to get that solar heat gain that you want. Um, But at the same time, I think there's something in there just between the super insulation, the efficient mechanical equipment, and the um, the real airtight enclosure that helps you make up for that a little bit we're not quite tied to the 70s passive solar movement where it's uh, a bunch of glazing and a lot of thermal mass does it help yeah but um i don't think it's required by any means to get to where you need to be
1: so as uh you know i think we're privileged in this this day and age in this time in human history i think we're privileged with such a a significant trajectory Uh, of growth and innovation i'm curious what trends are are exciting to you these days like technology or trends that you're seeing and you're south of the border so things are a little different up here in canada but you know we're we're neighbors so
0: yeah um i don't know about uh i think there's some stuff going on with some modular construction that seems to be real interesting um i know it hasn't quite taken off in the United States and I don't know about Canada, but like it has in Europe. um, And, and, There's something in there uh, that as we see more of that, I think it gives us better quality control of building assemblies because it's not built on site. It goes up quicker. It's not as exposed to rain or the elements before everything is sealed up and waterproof. Um, So that's exciting, I think, in terms of what we're actually seeing happen. And then in terms of what I want to see happen is I am still holding out for cheap vacuum insulated panels and cheap vacuum insulated glazing those are yeah. the two the two technologies that when they come out and they're available at a mass market i think will drastically change the game
1: yeah game changers for sure yeah i'm uh and just for some of our listeners don't understand what why is that so cool um if you're ever out
0: at a beach or anything like that you'll see all the people with the yeti coolers and the yeti mugs and it's the same principle they've sucked all of the air out between the two layers of the mug and uh, because there's no air in there there's no chance of getting um a convective loop going which in uh which is where the air keeps cycling uh, as it heats on the one side and cools on the other side and that's the primary mode of heat transfer out of something that we see. So the potential of getting a, basically like a big flat Yeti mug that you can put on the inside of all yeah. of your building, um, is just the the dream in terms of insulation, especially in terms of retrofit. So.
1: Right. Cause you actually get a ton of R value for inch of space required. Yeah. yeah, The idea. Yeah, absolutely. That is that, especially on the window side, we've spent some time, uh, talking with some folks from glass curtain, uh, and their vacuum insulated windows are just a really neat option, especially up here in colder climates. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, Chicago is not exactly warm in the winter, but yeah, it's the real deal. I'm, uh, I'm also curious about what you do in particular. I mean, what are some of the things you love about your jobs? What's like the worst part about your job? I mean, let's, let's hear a little bit more about you. um,
0: I think that the thing to love about the job is it's not the same thing every day. And that's absolutely true because, uh, when I worked at a larger architecture firm or when I worked at those uh, engineering firms, you tend to get stuck on one big project and you're on that project for two years. And then finally it gets built and you're off the project. And then there's another giant building that sucks up all of your time. But here, uh, I'm able to help provide feedback on multiple projects a day, multiple projects a week. Sometimes I'll look at 10 different projects a week. And um, here at Fias, we really try and pride ourselves on giving people constructive feedback when they're working on it. So it's not just you submitted your stuff and we give you a check mark and say, great job. Like if something's not right, we try and help you sort out the correct option to move forward. Um, And I think, I think, there's the, the mix of that, being able to mix in what we see and what people need help with and guidance on how we can build that into our research schedule and create guidance or calculators or some other type of tool to help aid in a frequently problematic part of design. Um, and then... Being able to work with people directly and teach them. Here's a new skill we developed. Here's a new thing we learned, and this is why we think this will help you make your buildings better. So it's a sort of the trifecta of all of the different parts of building design, construction, and then the community.
1: Well, and and I can appreciate what I what I'm hearing from you is like, hey, you know, as distinct from this big, massive, two year long project where it's the same group of people in the same project for a long period of time, you're actually helping a bunch of folks all over the country do cool things and so the 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 sense of positive influence is really what i'm hearing uh is expanding this fun now what is it like what is something that people most commonly misunderstand about your job you know when you try to explain to them hey i'm al this is what i do where do they typically get their wires crossed
0: i never know how to tell people uh what i do exactly sometimes if i if I know the audience well enough and I know that it's just not worth the time, I just say I'm an architect or an engineer. Um, like,
1: shortcut,
0: yeah. In, in, in the circles of other people, I'd say I work as a building scientist. Um, Cause I, for me, ultimately that's sort of where I want to be in this whole thing is being able to figure out and do more of the research and the back end type of work um, and how to provide what better guidance.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Like, I want So, you say the research piece now. I'm, I'm curious in, is because there's, we did some research, obviously, to get to know you and understand a little bit more about what you're doing. And I, I came across this, this climate specific energy optimization guideline, and it looks like there was a tool. Now, is that something you're familiar with or helped create?
0: Yeah, so that was uh, that was my master's thesis in architecture school. And Yeah, I know like I was reading the description <laughs>
1: and I was like holy smokes this sounds incredible. So would you mind elaborating on that for?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um Definitely the outlier project in my uh, master's cohort because the other kids were all trying to, you know, they've got their, I want to design a school and this is how I did my research and to figure out how kids are going to learn better and maybe they need spatial daylight autonomy or something like that. And I'm over here and I ran 153,000 energy models and then did a bunch of data crunching and statistics on it. Uh, Essentially... It's sort of the inverse of how Fias works. Fias used um, a bunch of optimizations to create cost-optimized single points. And then all of those recur fit per the climate zone to give you the the performance targets that you find on the calculators on the website. And essentially... Using Woofy as a tool and then it's like energy optimization itself is kind of complicated still depending on the tools available and not a lot of designers, especially those who are in the single family home business, have access to those tools. So what I was working on um, was a tool based in Rhino primarily that was going to take um, a building that someone designed and optimize it to hit the fiest targets. And when I talk about optimization, I want to be very clear that there is a difference between the optimized point of a project and the optimal points of a project, right? The optimized is the ultimate lowest energy usage, cost be damned. And uh, optimal is anything that's going to hit sort of that top 2%, anything that's going to hit the FIAS criteria, but it's not going to... um, break the bank it's not going to break the bank and it gives it gives the designer options as well so as a designer when you get your results from following that methodology you might have 10 or 15 options to pick so if you've got some really great window guys then you can go with the option that has better windows but uh you know if the guy who does your walls doesn't want to use a whole lot of exterior rigid insulation you know you can turn down the wall variable a little bit so there's still choices on the designer's end of the post optimization.
1: Okay. Cause I I'm actually fascinated by this. Uh, like personally fascinated because what I, I, I saw in the brief description I read is that you were trying to go, all right, if you're sitting in California and you want to build a high performance home, these are the variables that would evolve in your context. But if you move to Arizona or up to Chicago, you're going to need to consider these, context specific variables mm-hmm. which will actually have a big influence on your design decisions your material um your jail acquisition decisions like I, I was just i was really impressed with the logic that went into that so whatever happened to this like are you using the tool How, like tell me about this
0: yeah i i want to revisit it um cuz is part of a compressed, you know, you only get so much time in school to work on your stuff that you're yes. working on. And halfway through the semester, COVID happened. So they sent us all home. Oh. And I I lost access to, like, all of the computer labs where I was taking over multiple machines and running simulations at night and stuff like that. So um, I do want to revisit it. And I do want to find a way to bake it um, into something that's a little bit more friendly because it was set for rhino and grasshopper and i know grasshopper as soon as you open it for a lot of people they don't like the spaghetti monster it's, it's scary so yeah, these,
1: are, these are coding languages right like
0: yeah yeah so yeah well well rhino's the uh the 3d modeling tool that's popular in a lot of architecture firms yeah. and then um yeah so ultimately i'm hoping that it'll get built in as like a plugin for Woofy at some point in time, or it'll be a SketchUp-based tool where you can feed it a piece of geometry and it still runs all of these pre-baked things and gives you your options. Um, FIUS did something similar and put together a prescriptive path, but the prescriptive path is exactly that. It's one set of choices, and there's a little bit of room for uh, Enclosure R-value trade-off, but I'm still thinking there's something there's something more geometry specific that can be responded to with that. That doesn't require like high level energy modeling.
1: Yeah. And and geometry, just for a listener's sake, uh, what I'm understanding is that's like the design of the building, the outside shapes, angles, wall heights, so on.
0: Angles, wall heights, window placement, all of that. Like, Um, I think in the optimizer, originally I was varying the window placement based on a window to wall ratio factor. Um, so, but still window orientation definitely plays a role into all of that.
1: Okay. And yeah, this is fascinating because up in Canada, I mean, I'm thinking about the United States and I'm one of the questions I'm, I'm going to ask is does passive house have a, a larger presence in some parts of the United States as distinct from others? Uh, and where do you, where would, in your professional opinion, do you think it would be the most beneficial because the US is such a broad, uh, you know, from this is a broad country, lots of socioeconomic contrast, lots of climate contrast, and open Canada. We have an Arctic zone. uh Alaska's yeah, yeah. right next door, you know. Yeah. So I'll just walk into that for a moment. It's an open ended question. Yeah. Yeah, And
0: everybody in Canada lives right there, like on the 45th parallel too. you know, (laughs) how many, how many major population centers are up where it's real cold. Um, no, but in, in the United States, like you're you're exactly right. We've got everywhere from climate zone one, a down in Miami to eight up in Alaska. Um, so I think that was a big part of FIAS's initial, like, we need to figure this thing out separating off from what the Germans were doing, that it needs to respond directly to the climate it's around. Um, Where is it really popular right now? Uh, the Northeast is absolutely killing it. Um, Massachusetts, especially New York, uh, there's a huge uptake there. Um, there's some programs with the utilities, I think in Massachusetts and mass saves, uh, that has incentives for people to go this route. And, um, we really see a lot of that, especially in like multifamily housing. Yeah. So, um, Canada as well. We see I worked on a project in Toronto recently and then there was another one in Ottawa. So, um it definitely has taken off in a lot of the colder climates. I the benefits I don't think is are, are clearly as listed for the warm climates because it's more than just, you know, energy and insulation. There's so many other benefits in terms of Moisture prevention on and condensation risk on interior surfaces. You've got the benefit of a quieter home, the indoor air quality improvements, all the other things that get built into the standard that are overlooked by this notion that it's just a cold climate thing. so
1: yeah, and and the concept I think that's one of the things that I find hard to articulate to uh, to just people in general is that it's not about saving two hundred bucks a month on your energy bill. Like you listed all the other quality of life benefits that really make it a legacy home, something Mm -hmm. that you're going to want to live in for a hundred years and not tear down because it's just good. It's a good building. How do you articulate that to folks down there? Um, I, I
0: think exactly that. Like, um, one of the one of the big the big sellers I think in Texas uh, coming up is they just had that cold snap where they were without power and we had a we have a consultant um, who is an architect in Austin and he built himself a house to live in and he said it never got colder than about 50 55 with him the wife the kids and the dog and they all stayed inside and yeah, yeah it never got colder than 55 so were they cold yeah but they could put on a sweatshirt and it was very survivable um and especially in texas too and in a lot of these uh southern climates in the united states people are a little more libertarian minded and i think having some off-grid independence is a big selling point for me totally resilience um,
1: there's resilience, climate there's resilience,
0: resilience built, built into that yeah exactly um the comfort the quiet uh One of the other principles that a lot of people follow is sort of the right sizing of your home. I think a lot of people tend to be more happy with something that is just kind of in that Goldilocks zone. It's not too big. It's not too small. Um, Yeah, there's just, the list goes on of these other benefits that, and on top of that too, like it's still a well insulated home and it is going to save yeah. you money on your utility yeah, bill regar- exactly. regardless. Yes. <laughs>
1: but, and when I, and when, I and when I saw that they were implanting things like smart vapor retarders and breathable water resistant barriers, like so that the, any moisture that gets in your wall, diffuses out of the wall. I'm like, all of a sudden now we have resilient structures that aren't going mm-hmm. to rot over years, which is what I've seen leaky condo, uh, was a big problem in vancouver where there's up by seattle kind of concept lots of yeah and it was just like we have solutions to make these buildings last for a very long time which is impressive to me
0: and i was listening to the radio this morning and the factoid that they had is some uh some 80 percent of the buildings that are currently built right now are going to be around for at least until 2050 maybe 2080 um trying to build something better now that is going to last longer and last into the future as this legacy home is worth it in its own self like we're seeing a lot of the buildings that were built quickly and cheaply in the 70s and the 80s already starting to have problems and fall apart so well
1: and then you got to think the embodied carbon of the essentially wasting those structures and starting over. And, uh, and it's actually really like when you, at the start of this, uh, podcast, you, you talked very gently about pre world war two. We had some, I'm going to call almost like accidental design features that I don't think they were thinking building science back then, the way that you and I are talking now, but those massive overhangs did a couple of things, water shedding well away from the building structure, but they also did shading. So the siding had some durability because it wasn't sun scorched stucco. Uh, and it reminded me of a time I was taking my Red Seal carpentry um, uh, program with the instructor. He said, you know, he asked the question, what's the oldest standing wood structure, wood building that's been in continuous use? And uh, and it turned out we're all like you know, 100 years old and the wood's going to rot and fall apart because that's what we see, at least up here in the part of the country I'm in. There's just no old structures. Well, it was a 2000-year-old continuously lived in wood ha- wood homes and it's uh, i think it's in Austria and they because they had these homes that were built up off the ground that had breathable foundations so air could move underneath and these massive overhangs on the roof because of the snow and so it was a wood building that was breathing sufficiently uh and had good coverage from the elements and just lasted 2000 yeah. years yeah. and it was it was accidental but brilliant all at the same time
0: there's there's something there's some ways that were built into vernacular architecture that have been lost in terms of different, whether it's floor plan functionality or it is one of these like survivable building things. Cause at that point in time too, prior to world War two, especially like air conditioning was not common in homes and homes had to be ventilated. People had to open windows to get some natural cooling in there. And I think, uh, being better in tune with the building you're living in is what what people are missing right now. So,
1: yeah, yeah, well said, well said. And uh, you'd also mentioned the multifamily piece. You know, one of the things when I started off on this, I think in terms of residential construction, because that's you know residential home builders. I had no idea that the market for this is almost better optimized passive home thinking multifamilies. Yep, and it's almost like the scale of the apartment as it grows the compounding benefits of passive home design get better and better. Is yeah. That your experience as well?
0: Yeah, I think um I think that's exactly right. We see a lot of probably about 30 to 40,000 square foot um talking like 50-60 unit buildings uh that come together really nicely um because they're multi-family uh you've got more internal heat gains there's a little bit denser occupancy than you would in a single family home and that only plays to the benefit in these cold climates you need a little less insulation to be able to hit these targets and get the same exact benefits um
1: yeah, and that uh, I, what I got excited about is like as urban densification takes place and infilling happens, and I know uh, I know that there's a big push in a lot of urban centers uh, up here in Canada where they're going, they're they're changing the zoning to allow duplexes and fourplexes and sixplexes. Uh, it's just because we just need more space. We can't yeah. sprawl out anymore, so we have to densify, and and this is where I see these major retrofits and the passive house principles really serving us as a community uh, and a design as a design philosophy. Um, is there anything that you want to say? I feel like I made a statement and I didn't segue <laughs> to a question. <laughs> well, is it, I, I'm asking if the assumptions as I grow into this, it, are, are those fair or correct assumptions for people? Um, if they're considering doing a densification project.
0: Yeah, I I think um if you can figure out the challenge, and again, this is also like a bit of a zoning challenge to some extent. Um, in Chicago, we don't have a lot of row homes, but we have a lot of houses that touch each other. Are they, they come up and they share like, a, there's like a one inch air gap between buildings and stuff yeah. like that. So if we can get around a little bit of the zoning ordinances that make things like that happen and maybe insulate in between the two and share some walls, um, as we densify, you get all those same benefits. Especially, I think, in that small multifamily, like the two to four unit type thing. Um, really, really where it sits. As well, um, here, we just got uh, accessory dwelling units. ADUs were permitted, yeah. again. So, um, I w- was fortunate enough to get a chance to work on a little bit of a feasibility study, and... I think that would be a great test bed for following passive house principles and building these little right size coach houses or second story additions um, that are insulated and separated off from your space, but they still are not going to be complete energy hogs like they would if they were a smaller um, tiny house type structure. So,
1: yeah, cause that's, yeah. And I've, I've been fascinated by uh, it's almost as like smaller your home is like a tiny home is, is, it's harder to meet the passive house targets because there is a density to the amount of, um, utilities required. And, uh but I still think it's a worthwhile challenge, frankly. Yeah, if no, absolutely. And in FIAS
0: 2021, the new standard, um, we did respond to this small home problem and this also applies towards because we experienced a similar problem with source energy targets for studio units because instead of having uh two occupants share a bunch of stuff as they would in a one bedroom, you have a single occupant who has the same amount of appliances. They all everybody yeah. has a fridge, a dishwasher, a cook, cooktop, washer dryer, whatever. So, um the standard responded to this, especially in adjusting that source energy target. But even um, as you go down, you do need a little bit less insulation than you would if you were going to follow a you know fifteen hundred or two thousand square foot single family home. Uh, but I think there's still evidence that you get all of the same benefits in terms of uh, you know the things we've talked about the condensation
1: risk, the
0: quality of life, exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the things that condensation benefits i'm actually considering if it's possible for us to offer a like a 10-year mold free guarantee in our homes as we build them if we build to like based on building to a certain passive house standard because you're right we we should be able to leverage the benefits of intelligent design for the health of our clients Mm in the future and just stand stand behind that with uh with a commitment to construction principles. So, yeah,
0: hopefully, hopefully, your lawyer's not listening. Like. Yeah, no, and listen,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm open handedly considering this, going, I hope we can do this uh, because what a gift. And I think poorly designed homes that are st- stretching into this, or air sealing our homes, but we're not actually honoring the principles of air tightness. Uh, And we're letting gaps into our building envelope and we're not using breathable membranes and, and, and are going to create some significant health and structural concerns for, for clients. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's gonna be based on builders and frankly, homeowners that are are trying to do the least amount possible to just check the, I passed the requirements box and uh, not putting the forethought in, um, to build high quality structures. Uh, That's just, that's just a, a perspective that I have on the situation currently, but You know, as we draw to a close here, and it's just fun, we talked about it before the before we started up. I mean, there's a article in the Chicago Tribune, you had built a catapult to launch pumpkins, and I'm like, come on, we gotta talk to this guy. This is awesome. So about that.
0: Yeah. Um as a kind of like engineering minded kid, my favorite program, every Thanksgiving, I would yell at everybody to get out of the room. It was time to watch Pumpkin Chunkin on the Science Channel. Right. It ha- I think it happens over in New Jersey and it's out in the field. And I mean, if you watch that, these guys are shooting a pumpkin like a mile. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a very different ball ballgame. Um, but IIT being the engineering school that it is. uh Always would put on the annual pumpkin launch for family weekend, which is typically around like Columbus Day weekend, the second weekend in October. And um, I got a couple of my fraternity brothers together, all of us engineers, and we... uh we actually competed in it three different years out of the four years I was there. Uh, the first year we built the machine and it was a trebuchet and we got it down there. And I think we were doing okay in terms of our test launch with like a milk gallon that we were firing off into the, the quad of Greek houses. And, uh, during the competition, the arms snapped in half. <laughs> so that design got scrapped, obviously. And then the next year, we built a little bit bigger. We built a little bit better, reinforced some things. Instead of using sand, we actually like cast a concrete counterweight for it. And we were able to fire a pumpkin uh, a solid 200 feet. Nice. so that was you know it's a good time to get out there and launch it and um we actually won the accuracy because the accuracy was there were, there were two games in the competition one was distance one was accuracy and uh for accuracy it was just like how close you got to your guess so as we're rolling the machine up they're like how far do you think it's going to shoot i'm like i don't know 175 feet and we got like 174.8 so it was like wow yeah pretty pretty <laughs> pretty good guess so and then the third year we did it, we snapped an axle. So that was also kind of horrifying. <laughs> but um,
1: <laughs> you know, what? I, I love this. Yeah, yeah
0: I, I, I highly recommend if you've got some time and you've got a couple two by fours, you don't know what to do with, build a pumpkin trebuchet and go to town. It's worth it.
1: uh You know, Al, I don't think there's a better way to finish this. That is, that's beautiful. I, I love the practical application and something fun because you know at the end of the day we're smart people, building scientists, even like but we still got to enjoy what we do and have some creative outlets. So uh, I'm going to say thank you for joining us today. Oh, and thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Yeah. I appreciate that. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Thanks for listening to the Net Zero to Hero podcast. Be sure to visit our website at netzerotohero.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and gain access to our free resources and materials.